I, I was genuinely surprised by the lack of humanity that these people have faced through some incredibly dark and human experiences. Thinking about how can we change this as lawyers, as legal professionals, as just humans, like what are some of the things we can do uh, to ensure that, you know, people who need their help get the help they need? We do need a radical shift. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the new season of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarland, the founder of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. So for our season opener, we are going to bring you a conversation that I had with three students on the Ryerson Legal Practice Program following uh, a program that we presented to them in which they met and talked with self-represented litigants. More about that in a moment. These three students are Jesse Froelich, Lorreen Williams, and Zainab Asadula. And as you will see, they all had a lot to say about their experience. What NSRLP did at the invitation of Chris Bentley and his colleague Gina Alexandris was we came in and ran four sessions for the Ryerson LPP students. The first one was an introduction to the background and the research about self-represented litigants. The last was an opportunity to do some reflection, but the two middle sessions, which is what these students are really fired up about and are talking about in this episode, were with self-represented litigants who we arranged to come in and be part of the class. So they had a couple of hours in each case with uh, something between 15 and 20 self-represented litigants altogether were involved and they got to meet, to meet and to talk to a handful of them each. And I think that as you will hear, it was a very enlightening experience. So I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast this week, three students from Ryerson Legal Practice Program, Lorene, Zanab, and Jess, who were all part of the class that participated with self-represented litigants at the end of last year. And I've asked them to come and share their experiences with podcast listeners today. This was the first time that we have been able to integrate the experiences of self-represented litigants into a law school classroom for which we are very grateful for the support of Chris Bentley and his colleagues at the Legal Practice Program at Ryerson. And I'm excited to hear from you guys what you got from this. So my first question to you is, what could you say was your takeaway, your biggest takeaway? And maybe you have a couple of takeaways from the experience that you went through um, in the classes at which the self-represented litigants participated. And Lorene, can I start with you? I think one of the biggest takeaways for me was just how the sheer number of self-reps were just really regular people. I think we have this idea that self-reps are, um, you know, really poor, not able to have a certain degree of educational, you know, um, competence, that sort of thing. 
Um, but just meeting and interacting with the self reps, uh, it really struck home to me that the system is not really working for the average resident or citizen. And that is not to downplay the struggle of lower income people as well. I think if anything, <laughs> the fact that so many of our self reps uh, were actually average, you know, workers um, really emphasize how, um, how broken the system really is. Right. I think that we tend to think, well, you know, there are, is legal aid for people who are in the most marginalized positions. But mm -hmm. as of course we, we now know, there is a huge group of people who don't come anywhere near qualifying for legal aid, but still can't afford to retain a lawyer. So right. great point. Jess, let me come to you next. What was your takeaway? I think for me, I, I I felt like it really highlighted sort of systemic issues for me that maybe not even necessarily with just self-represented litigants, but just the law society and, and, and how the profession looks today. Uh, I think if you look at our profession, it's changing and it's evolving. It is. But I think there is still a face that you see more, uh, more often than not. And I think that that is a face that has worked very hard to stay as the face of the profession. So if you look at our program, the LPP, it was a majority of women, students of color, and there were more queer, queer people in it than you know I remember ever having in law school. So I think you're looking at marginalized communities already within this who were not you know, maybe given the same opportunities. We see that translate into how the profession deals with non-lawyers and with just the average person who needs um, legal assistance. And I think sometimes, mm -hmm. And again, we look at that sort of straight white man as putting themselves on a pedestal. And as a result of that, they see their services or he's themselves having a certain sort of value that like what they do is, is at a certain level. And they kind of look down on everybody else. And I remember working in a firm um, a few years ago, and I remember one of the, the other side was a self-represented litigant. And I remember sort of hearing like, oh, that guy's self-rep, this is going to be a nightmare. Like it was just very derogatory kind of stereotype that Lorene yeah. referred to when she yes. was speaking yes I got you get to see what the other candidates in the program were saying about the session and everybody seems really impacted by it and seemed really um inspired by it and I think what was exciting for me about it was to see the fact that like we are now a new generation of people coming into the profession who have the power to eventually make changes I think it's programming like this that we were able to have that was able to give us um something that was a little bit more raw than everything else and 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 mm. sort of see possibilities beyond what we've had sort of as the status quo thus far. I am also uh, having taught law students now for many decades struck by the difference in the new generation of law students, young lawyers and so forth and as you say um the increased diversity. I mean, it certainly couldn't have got any less diverse. So, you know, there was always yeah. going to eventually be more diversity and we are, we are starting to see that. And as you say, the LPP, perhaps because of the way that it's been set up and structured, you know, particularly attracts a much more diverse group of people. So do you think that that diversity is going to enable your generation of lawyers to be able to relate in a different way to the diversity of clients and self-represented litigants we see out there. Absolutely, I mean, I think our, because we've all had such different journeys that we can maybe appreciate what those um, litigants are going through. But at the same time, I think we're seeing this new 
form of allyship coming around too. So I think we are starting to have more conversations, not just sort of within a diverse group, but with the collective. And I think we're starting to see a generation of people who are not maybe willing to play by the same rules that have been there for a while. And, and it's starting and it's very young, but everything starts somewhere. It does. And it's extremely hopeful. Zanab, would you like to jump in here and tell us what your big takeaway was from this experience? One of the things that, you know, really jumped out to me was uh, sort of like the like the casual discrimination and dismissiveness that SRL, SRLs would face uh, in court, talking to other lawyers, and how despite many, if not all of them, being incredibly well-informed of their case, of case law, of statutes, legislation, um, they were immediately dismissed as uh, just not as competent, not intelligent, and frankly, not worthy of anyone's time. And I really, you know, felt that frustration come through. Um, and it's interesting because even though there's been like recent case law, we, we have um, at the highest level, uh, the message. Some degree of, of recognition, yes. Exactly, yeah. and yet um, it, it just shows that as much as, you know, we can make statements and we can um, have it recognized at the highest level, the issue really is much more deeper than that. And, you know, it kind of gave me pause and, and it made me really consider uh, why that is, why there is such a uh, almost like a boys club sort of attitude in the profession. And, and I could relate as being as, like a woman of color and, and experiencing that and knowing that there's a lot of the legal profession that makes it very difficult. Just like how Jesse was saying, it makes it very difficult to really be considered um, to be considered seriously. And when you're an SR, and that's me speaking as somebody who went to law school, who's got, done the LPP, who's now working. And so for the SRL experience, it's even more alienating. The other thing I also realized was that, you know, you're an SRL for not just one reason. There's so many reasons yes. why mm -hmm. you go down that route. And more often than not, there's a lot of marginalization already occurring that's caused you to come down this route. And so for the profession to not have that requisite empathy and respect um, is, is appalling. And I also felt like, you know, when I spoke to these SRLs, I felt like the fact that they uh, kind of went down this journey, um, which is a very difficult one, uh, is deserving of a lot more respect than, than what's been shown. And, and I, frankly, I respect them a lot more than I would to somebody who has gone through law school and, and does know all this stuff right. already, right? So Because they've, was, they've started with no knowledge at all and they have really worked at it and done their best, but they're still being treated as if they're stupid. Um, exactly. And, you know, you're, you're, you use the word empathy, uh, Zanab, which I think is so incredibly important here. And the people who were part of your class, um, pretty much every last one of them told us afterwards that they were just so moved and touched by the fact that they found the students to be empathetic towards them. And it was such a contrast. This was so, so interesting to the way that they're generally used to being talked to by lawyers. What it is that I'm most surprised about was that, was there something that, that kind of was most 
took you aback or something that you thought was really not what you were expecting. Um, Lorene, you touched on this a little bit in terms of the sort of socioeconomic um, dimension uh, and of, of the group, but is there anything you know else that surprised you that you want to highlight? All of the self-reps we engage with, if they had a choice, nine and a half times out of 10, they would they go with a lawyer. <laughs> they would not be in that position, right? Exactly. Um, and I think in the legal profession, there's this um, kind of idea that, you know, self-reps are here to take away our jobs, you know, that, you know, if, if, if we engage, if we support self-reps, somehow uh, lawyers will be out of work. And I think that's... Um, erroneous uh, idea. Uh, I think a lot needs to happen re-education because that very, the very fact that all the self-reps, the only reason why they became self-reps is maybe socioeconomic uh, reasons. Um, and, if they and, had and, a better choice, they'd have taken it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so that was definitely a, a takeaway for me. Yeah. It just goes to, um, you know, thinking about how can we change this as lawyers, as legal professionals, as just humans, like what are some of the things we can do uh, to ensure that, you know, people who need the help get the help they need? Well, I, I'd like to come back to that in a minute, Lorene. But Jessica, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you, was there anything particularly that surprised you, shocked you? I think I think the way, in, in terms of the programming itself, it was kind of the humanity that was um, shocking in a sense because, you know, law school is very, I don't want to use the word robotic because I don't think that's necessarily true, but it's very structured clinical. in a way. It's very clinical. That's the right word. And even with the LPP, like, yes, we were working on, you know, files, but it, it, it and the actors, I mean, the, the LPP is, was incredible in terms of the way we got to work on, um, on simulated problems on simulated files so, so yes you know the actors were incredible but I was able to kind of leave and go okay they were actors and they in the moment it was amazing and I was able to to invest but you know when we had this when we had I think it was the second session where we actually brought in um the litigants and got to sit and, yes. and chat with them and there's one woman whose story haunts me still and this was months ago and I still think about her story and I think about the fact that she was you know, going through something so heartbreaking and yet had nobody to help her and, and, and was really being taken advantage of by the system. And I, I was genuinely surprised by the lack of humanity that these people have faced through some incredibly dark and human experiences. I think as I sort of touched on, you know, I had heard, oh, you know, they're self, you know, self reps, like they're, it's going to be a nightmare, you know, and and I, I, I understand that it is, it can be more difficult to work with someone who doesn't have the knowledge because you're not, you know, you're not dealing with someone who just knows exactly how the process is going to work and you do need to be a little bit more patient. But I don't think I was expecting to hear those stories told in a way where I was just, I was aghast by the fact that these, that this woman was treated so horribly um, and really taken advantage of. Yeah, it's, it's a really, I think self-reps really illustrate what happens when the system starts to be more important than the people, the individuals in it. And, and I think you make a, an excellent point about, you know, 
the fact that we need to keep reminding ourselves of the humanity of the individuals and their actual stories. And that we do sometimes lose sight of that at law school. So Zana, would you like to add any yeah. particular surprise? I think what um, really struck me was uh, the stigma that a lot of SRLs face. It was something I hadn't even considered before I, we, we did those sessions. Um, namely, one of the self reps I spoke to said that, you know, I don't really have anyone in my life to talk about this with. Mm-hmm. All my friends and family, they're just tired of it because it's, yes. it, it's and, and for her, she, you know, she said that it was, it had become all consuming for the last five or so years of her life that this was just the journey she was on and she was walking it totally alone. You know, I've been told so many times by self reps, no one will, none of my friends will have beer with me anymore because all I ever talk about is my case. And I mean, that's not because they have some kind of mental problem. It's because when you're that invested in something that's so deeply important to you, of course, you think about it all the time. And as you say, Zana, that kind of drives support away, which is why we would usually employ someone to be our supporter. Listen, you all are coming to the end of your legal education. And I'm sure in many ways that might be a relief to say nothing of the cost and the expense of the experience. And as you know, this is something that we did for the first time with the Rice and LPP. And I'm, I'd like to hear you each say something about, you know, what you think could have been maybe earlier integrated into your legal education, because, you know, this is, this is kind of late in the day for you to be meeting self-reps. I'd like first-year law students to, to meet them too. And I'm also interested, and this, this you know, you've alluded to this when, when you've been talking already, you know, what do you take from this that you're going to try to use in your practice? And, and what does it make you feel you need to perhaps know more about? I think as lawyers and as legal professionals, we need to be willing and able to not be so rigid and, you know, and be able to color outside of the line sometimes. So to approach, to have a practice where it's, uh, you know, identifying the needs of, of our clients or for opposing people who will interact with on the other side and, and just determine what we'll need to do just to, to get a matter resolved. And that can, you know, look very different for, for very different people. One of the things um, which, as I recall just now, uh, self-rep mentioned was in because of his frustration and, and trying to learn the ropes, he read the entire civil procedure rules. So that thing I did not even I oh my goodness I have my head in my hands right (laughs) he read the entire civil procedure rules and yet he he did not understand the nuances of just going back to what I said earlier re why self-reps choose uh, become self-reps and and that they would nine times out of ten choose a lawyer is the idea that like traditional hourly billing rates may not necessarily work for everyone. So we, we just need to consider, you know, alternative ways of um, billing and, 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 you know, different ways, you know, maybe co-legal coaching or all alternative like methods. Sharing uh, some support. of the work and the responsibility. Exactly. Yes. So, yeah. yeah, those are some of the things I think for my own practice that, these are things that before um, I would not have necessarily considered. And I think that 
in the, the legal uh, system here, law schools here, if, if lawyers um, and legal trainees are introduced to these concepts, you know, uh, limited scope retainers, that sort of thing earlier, then it, it does not become uh, this oddity uh, yes. later on when you encounter uh, self-reps. I can't tell you the difference between go myself going to talk to a bar association, especially you know, five, six, seven years ago about limited scope or coaching, the difference in the reception that I would get in those gatherings, and this is, you know, going back a few years now, mm -hmm. between that and talking to a law school class where everybody would be, oh, that's really interesting, without those preconceptions that somehow this is going against the grain. And I think that you, you put your finger on something so important, which is that this generation has an openness to just think about some of these common sense alternatives. So I think if we start with just law students in general, you know, people go into law school, I would say for one of two reasons, maybe both, you know, you, it's either they want a job that's going to pay them a lot of money or they want a job where they can, you know, make a difference and they can have an impact on, on people. And so, you, you know, you're catering to a base that has those, that dichotomy. Yes. And I think what I maybe didn't think of at the time, but now, you know, having had time to reflect since we've had the sessions, I think it's very easy to really cater to both of those um, groups of people. And, you know, Lorene had mentioned how people are doing, you know, people are self-represented nine times out of 10 because they cannot afford legal services and they don't have access to justice. So you're not losing money. You are not those... You're not losing clients because they those can't are not, afford you anyway. <laughs> are not prospective clients. They can't afford yeah. you, so you're not losing out. Yeah. And then we can look at things um, like bundled services, um, limited scope retainers. I think coaching would be great. You know, if you've got a room of you know ten self-represented litigants and just taught them the process. There was a joke on the show Friends where Phoebe, who is a masseuse, and she said that she taught. Uh, her business wasn't going well because she taught a massage yourself at home class and all of her clients started doing that. This is not the same, right? So by, by sharing the wealth of knowledge, these people are going to be like, oh, I'm a lawyer now. Like, I'm going to be fine. It's, you're, you're, not, it, you're not alienating anybody because you're not dealing with people who are going to be your clients or customers. Setting themselves up as competitors. If you are in it for the money, doing things like coaching, doing things like bundled services, doing things like um, limited scope retainers, that can be lucrative. So you can look at it like that. And then you've got that sort of audience down. They're, they're seeing this as a potential um, to tap into perhaps a new market that hasn't really existed yet. And you can see the, the financial benefit from that. And that will, you I think- be both up. entrepreneurial and you can do something about access to justice. And you can do something time. virtuous yes. at the same time. What do you think, Zanab? I think, um, well, at least to answer one of your questions, like for me, again, my legal experience, like background, like I went to the UK to do law school. And again, I think as Jesse mentioned earlier, it was a very clinical experience. I think one of the most important steps is, you know, not just educating, but perhaps even integrating um, some sort of program or some sort of like further education for lawyers, law students, articling students um, to kind of make them aware and 
um, really uh, expose them to um, so some sort of training program that could offer be, be offered as continuing legal ed for people who are already in practice, but also in law schools that really gave them a sense of why we have so yeah. many self-represented litigants. Yeah. I, and, you know, I'm a big proponent of, uh, you know, radical change, not slow, like, you know, milk toast, mm. little steps. You know, we have um, CPD hours. I don't see why uh, it can't be a thing for lawyers in certain practice areas to have to take on um, so mandatory for free. Mandatory. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, th these things we often say, oh, not in our lifetime. You know, this is going to take years of generational um, change. And no, it can happen overnight, right? Um, People, and I people think in a post-pandemic world, people are somewhat more impatient for change to happen. So Absolutely. let's hope that this is this is the beginning part of that change of a far broader acceptance and recognition of what self-reps go through and a real response to that from the profession. So I want to just thank all three of you so much for this conversation. I know people are going to be very interested in what you have to say as future lawyers. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Thank you so, so much, much for having us. But before we start talking about what they specifically said, uh, we wanted to make you aware of just how great the reception among all of the LPP candidates was to the program that we presented and meeting all of these self-represented litigants. These three were not the only ones who were super enthusiastic, super grateful. Just, we got such wonderful messages, such positive yeah. feedback and response from so and many. So students. many. <laughs> so many. And when we, you know, we decided that it would be great to do a podcast episode about this and talk to some of them. And we were kind of overwhelmed by the number of people who wrote yeah. in wanting to, to talk about this and be on the podcast. And we kind of just had to like pick three and, and, yeah. and go with that. And the first thing that we kind of wanted to get into here was um, as Jess brought up, and I think the others talked about as well, this idea of marginalized communities. And it's, it's interesting because as Jess pointed out, so many of the LPP candidates themselves come from marginalized communities, which I think says something about who in the kind of, you know, legal education system tends to get articling positions. And because there's already more people within the program who come from marginalized communities, and if they don't even are at least exposed to a greater diversity of folks, there's kind of already this understanding of self-reps who come from marginalized communities, as so many of them do, and an empathy and an understanding of you know, how difficult this system is. Yeah, I thought I thought that it was really striking the parallel that Jesse yeah. was drawing between the growing diversity in law school. And it's, as you said, it's especially clear on the um, LPP at Ryerson and this kind of natural instinctive tolerance and embracing of people who, you know, might be different from you, might have a different mm -hmm. history, might have a different background, might look different from you. And, you know, I hadn't really thought before about this idea that part of what I think is happening with the, with the new generation of lawyers is that they are taking, you know, 
the, the whole spectrum of people mm. who come to the courts, both those who are represented and those who aren't, you know, in their stride because mm. they don't expect everybody to look the same or to be wealthy. They know that people come from mm -hmm. all kinds of different backgrounds. And that just gives them, I think, a little bit of an instinctive empathy. And, and that also gives me, I think, some real hope for mm. the way that the profession will continue to develop and, and understand better the needs of self-reps. The empathy that the, the candidates had, even just in their conversations with the self-reps and how, how great they were with these folks. And it gave the self-reps hope. We should say that too. We got a lot of messages from the self-reps who took yes. part just going on and on about how wonderful the students yeah. were to them, which- It yeah, gave them some hope, I think, and restored yeah. some faith for them as well. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that the, the candidates pointed out afterwards, and, and I think that we agree with this, is that this needs to happen more in law school, but it needs to happen earlier. earlier, because yeah. as you said, Dana, these are folks right at the very end of their legal training. Yeah. Um, NSRLP can provide this kind of exposure, if you want to call it that, and discussion and interaction to law schools all over Canada, because yeah. we have self-reps all over who are yeah. very happy to participate. And I think all of the self-reps also did an absolutely excellent job oh, of describing amazing. themselves and their story and what their yeah. challenges had been. So, you know, let's see well, more of it and let's see it earlier in law school. Exactly. And as like Laureen brought up that point, and as she said, you know, if it is, if these concepts, especially things like unbundling and alternative legal services, as well as what it's like to be a self-rep, if these things are brought up and introduced early on and, and more often, then when they do come up again in later years in various contexts, they won't seem crazy or like, you know, that this is, right. well, this isn't the way we do things, yeah. um, which is. Yeah, I thought that was point. such a great point. And I yeah. mean, I also loved what she said about the fact that, you know, no lawyer should be worrying that self-reps are about to put them out of work yes, because self-reps can't afford them. Um, so what, you know, there is here is a marketing opportunity, which Jesse talked about too, mm -hmm. a marketing mm -hmm. opportunity to offer more affordable, limited services. But, you know, this is not going to put lawyers out of business. Um, these are not people no. who can afford to go to lawyers ordinarily. But we know from our own research that self-reps continue to look for some kind of legal assistance if they can possibly find it. Absolutely. And it presents an opportunity, as Jesse talked about, for lawyers to, yes, make a good income and sustain their careers, but also make a palpable difference. I loved the way you ended this conversation when Zanab talked about radical change and like mm. this can happen, like we can do this. Why shouldn't mm. we make big changes and kind of overhaul the system and, and push in big ways? And I think we, it's easy to get into a mindset of kind of like, you know, well, small steps and, you know, and there's something to be said and those have their time and their place. But I think it's also, it's invigorating to hear from these students or candidates, I should say, these young lawyers that they are like eager to make big change and ready to make big change and, and ready right. to kind of not do things as they have always been done. And at a time when the Law Society of Ontario is too divided over the question of extending paralegals yes. license to do some family work that they can't even have a vote on it, it's pretty refreshing to hear the lawyers of the future talk about, we can do this, we can yeah. change, it's not yeah. such a big deal. So I, I thought that it ended on a very hopeful note as well. 
Welcome back to In Other News. My name is Charlotte Sullivan, and I will be your news correspondent on this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. I am happy to recap the following news stories from the past few weeks. First, we have a piece from the Law Times on expanding access to remote hearing technologies. The COVID-19 pandemic has, in many ways, forced various workplaces to adapt to new technologies in order to continue operating over the last two years. Many schools and offices have embraced the use of software like Zoom, Microsoft Teams, and the like, with synchronous virtual spaces permitting face-to-face interactions while many of us were forced apart. As many of our listeners will know, the courts are no exception. Since March 2020, many courts have opted to conduct remote hearings instead of simply delaying proceedings until there's a better time. And given how long this pandemic has lasted, that turned out to be a great decision and one that likely stopped the justice system from significantly increasing the case backlog it has been experiencing for the last while. Over the last few months, however, as governments turn increasingly to recovery and loosening restrictions, many have wondered whether virtual hearings will continue. For Ontario, the answer appears to be a resounding yes. After the provincial government and the Ontario Superior Court of Justice conducted more than 3.2 million remote and hybrid hearings over the last two years, the Ontario Ministry of Attorney General announced $65 million in funding over the next five years to modernize technology and court operations. This is part of the Provincial Justice Accelerated Strategy, which seeks to improve access to justice in Ontario by moving more court services online and expanding remote hearing technology to even more courtrooms across the province. Per Attorney General Doug Downey, this $65 million investment will ensure that video and audio hearings are available in every region, including rural, northern, and indigenous communities that were previously underserved. By building this additional capacity for remote hearings, the justice system may thus become more accessible to them and prevent individuals in those remote communities from having to travel sometimes significant distances just to attend proceedings. The funding will be going towards a few specific items, such as the installation of audiovisual technology, the purchase and upgrade of computers and other necessary hardware, IT and tech training for both the judiciary and court staff, and increasing internet bandwidth. Previous initiatives undertaken by the Ministry of Attorney General have included a $28.5 million investment to create a digital case management system to help reduce delays, updating small claims court processes, and modernizing civil court procedures. Taken together, these initiatives are aimed at making the justice system in the province more accessible, responsive, and resilient. Meanwhile, in other provinces, remote hearings are also continuing to take place. While British Columbia has resumed in-person appeal hearings and chambers proceedings, parties can choose to appear remotely, which allows for hybrid proceedings. Alberta continues to hold all proceedings virtually. Meanwhile, in Nova Scotia and in Newfoundland and Labrador, trials and sentencing hearings are held in person, but other proceedings are heard virtually. For a second piece of news for today, we have a piece concerning a recent proposal by the Law Society of Ontario, or LSO for short, on expanding family legal services provider licenses to paralegals for certain specified services. The LSO intended to hold a vote to that effect on February 24th and delayed it after substantial backlash from the legal community. 
Per the LSO, expanding licensing to paralegals to allow them to practice family law would be a measure aimed at improving access to justice by broadening the field of professionals equipped to help litigants with family law matters. However, some advocates see the issue differently. In a recent opinion piece for the Lawyers Daily, Sarah Bowlby notes that there is no evidence that paralegals would provide cheaper family law services than lawyers. Moreover, many are worried that licensing and promoting service providers who may not have the competence, skills, or education required to practice family law. We know that family law is a challenging area of law that impacts many members of the public. We also know that access to justice in this area can be very expensive. Many people who are ineligible for legal aid still struggle to afford legal representation. Many other people who can afford a lawyer, sim a lawyer simply wish to represent themselves. In Ontario, many strides have been taken in recent years to improve the situation. For example, joint and uncontested divorces are available online with no lawyers required. Calculating child and spousal support is also possible online through government websites. The Family Justice Centre provides pro bono services in family law. Family courts provide free mediation services. And finally, Advice and Settlement Council Toronto provides lawyers who help self-represented litigants by speaking to motions, case conferences, and the like, and also providing summary advice and coaching in the Superior Court of Justice. The provision of unbundled legal services is generally encouraged to assist SRLs in this space. All in all, these initiatives have been helpful, though they have not resolved the entire issue. Bulby notes that improving access to justice in this area would be better served by supporting, funding, and promoting initiatives currently at the pilot stage, by expanding the unified family courts, and by implementing law reforms to simplify family law and civil procedure in the context of family law. Expanding licensing to paralegals as a solution prior to undertaking that work is, Bulby argues, potentially very expensive and risky for the public. She argues that there are better ways of achieving access to justice. That concludes this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Please join us next episode for another thought-provoking conversation.